Well, good morning. Uh, glad that we can be all back together here today. If you missed uh, the announcements earlier, um, again, my name is Thomas, if you happen not to know that. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here with the church, and I have a chance to, uh, or I've had the chance to preach a little bit more uh, often here this summer because our lead pastor, Pastor Brett, he's been on sabbatical. And so as I've had the chance to preach, I've been taking us through uh, basically a summer series, trying to work our way through the book of First Thessalonians. And so we're going to continue on with that this morning. Uh, we've been through the first three chapters, and now we're on into chapter four. So if you have your Bibles with you, you can open up uh, to First Thessalonians, First Thessalonians chapter four. If you happen not to have a Bible, you can raise your hand, and Greg will make sure you get one. Um, but and as you're moving to First Thessalonians four, uh, please pray with me one more time, and then we'll read. So Lord, I just want to say thank you again for pulling us together here this morning, and I pray simply that you would clear out the distractions in our minds, that you would help us to hear from you this morning, you would help us to believe what is true and to embrace you this morning and to live accordingly. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we'll look at the first eight verses. So verse 1, Paul says, Finally then, brothers, we ask and we urge you in the Lord Jesus... That as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, that uh, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one transgress or wrong his brother in this matter. Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Amen. Okay, so in this uh, section of the letter here, Paul is uh, concerned with what he's really been concerned with all along in the book. It's one of his deepest Concern, it's really his deepest concern for the Thessalonians, in that, and that is that they would be holy. That they would be uh, holy. Uh, and not just that they would be holy, but they would persevere in that all the way to the end when Jesus comes back. And to be holy here, that means, uh, basically it means that, that as, as people of God, that we would conform our lives to the character of God, to the designs of God in any given uh, circumstance. Another way that we could put it, to be holy is simply to be pleasing to God. Another way that we could think about it, Isaiah 45 verse 9, it says this, there should be a slide for that. Um, Isaiah 45 says this, uh, this is God speaking and he says, I the Lord speak the truth. I declare what is right. So this is actually helpful for thinking about holiness. To be holy, we could say, is to conform to what God says is truth. It is to conform to what God says is right. That would be a good way to think about what it means to be holy. And in this section here, Paul is addressing one specific expression of holiness, namely sexual purity. And uh, he wants the Thessalonians to persevere in this, and so he's going to command them here, abstain from sexual immorality. And uh, 
This would have been really good instruction for the Thessalonians. Uh, good that, the, that Paul was giving them this instruction, really because of the, uh, the culture from which many of the Thessalonian believers would have been coming, and also the, the, um, the present surrounding culture there at the time. Um, Gordon Fee says this, he says about that culture, he says, the pagan world simply did not think of sexual promiscuity or indulgence as wrongdoing. Thus, sexual immorality was not immoral to them. And you can see also there's a a picture here. This is just a picture of a bath that was alongside a brothel there in Thessalonica. This this would have been there at the time that Paul wrote this letter. Um, And uh, so brothels, not uncommon. And there was a man named uh, Demosthenes. And he, he, lived, he actually lived in a time earlier than when this letter was written. But he sort of uh, speaks to what the, the time period was like even when the letter was written. And he says this. He says, Mistresses we keep for our pleasure, concubines for our day-to-day physical well-being, and wives to bear us legitimate children. So this is the thinking of the time period. Um, And also about this culture, James Grant says this, he says, Most people didn't expect husbands to be committed to their marriages. Sexual misconduct and adultery were widespread. Prostitution was a business just like any other source of income. And actually, in much of the religion that would have been surrounding the Thessalonian church here, the pagan religions, um, actually, uh, prostitution would have been promoted. It would have been promoted as something that you would do actually in the temple of their gods. You would go to the temple of the gods and and, and you would engage in prostitution. That would be a way that you could give sacrifices and pay homage and and worship your pagan god. This was the, the culture that this Thessalonian church was growing in. And so... I think that that pagan culture back then sounds a lot like our culture in many ways. Not every way, but in many ways. And mainly uh, what I mean by that is that um, in many ways what, what God says is immoral, I think that much of our United States American popular culture would say, no, that's not immoral. In fact, it's perfectly fine. In fact, let's celebrate that thing that God says at least is immoral. And so I think that the command here to abstain from sexual immorality, man, it applies to us just as much now as it did to them some 2,000 years ago. And so for the message today, I just want to flesh that out a bit, flesh out a little bit what Paul has in mind here, and then uh, just get at two questions. Number one, why? Why should we obey this command to abstain from sexual immorality? And then secondly, how? How can we obey that command? So first of all, then, what does Paul uh, have in mind here in this section? Well, Paul is encouraging the Thessalonians here for their holiness. He actually is encouraging them uh, that they are holy, they are sexually pure in a way. But he's also feeling compelled here to urge them on to keep going, to do so more and more, he says. Uh, Because I think that, again, the church was living against the grain of the culture's sexual ethic. And so in pleasing God, the Thessalonians were essentially paddling upstream, we might say. Right? You, you can get that if you've ever canoed or you've kayaked and you try to go upstream or even against the wind. That can be very difficult. And if you want to just drift for a second, what happens? You suddenly start going backwards. You get turned around. 
excuse me, you get turned around and you start going the other direction. And I think that was a concern. That would have been a concern for Paul here with the Thessalonians. Um, maybe that the current from the, the, the surrounding culture just might get too much for them. And if they didn't keep paddling, so to speak, they would de facto to get turned back around and just flow with the cultural current, maybe, get, uh, maybe fall back into their own sinful patterns. And so Paul urges them on. He says, do so more and more. Keep paddling, we might say. In fact, he says, verse 3, this is God's will for them. So verse 3 says, this is the will of God, your sanctification. So your sanctification, he says. Big theological word there. Um, And what he means by that, basically, sanctification is ongoing growth in holiness. So it's being holy, but it's being so more and more. Do so more and more, as Paul says. And it's important to note here, uh, related to this, um, we're not talking about justification. Okay, another big uh, theological word there, justification. Justification, that refers to that one-time event where God declares us to be righteous by virtue of our being united to Jesus by faith. And man, that is the gospel basically in a nutshell. That's the the gospel of Jesus. That's the good news of Jesus. It's that if we're trusting in Jesus alone for the forgiveness of our sins, if we trust him for favor with God, if we trust him for eternal life with God, then essentially Jesus takes on the punishment for our sin and we get his righteousness. God justifies us. God declares us to be righteous because of Uh, because of Jesus. And sanctification then, on the other hand, that then follows out of that. That flows out of that. Um, Another way that we could uh, say this is that once we are justified, then sanctification becomes this ongoing process throughout life of becoming in practice what we actually already are in position and in identity uh, before God because of Jesus. Um, And so our culture would tell us to just be yourself, right? Just, just be you. Be yourself. Be true to yourself. Well, sanctification for the Christian, sanctification is the process of evermore becoming who we truly are as God's people because of Jesus. Being who we really are. So as Christians, we, we will really be true to ourselves uh, as we evermore conform to God's character. As we evermore conform to God's designs throughout life. And uh, again, in this section here, uh, this is what's in view. It's sanctification as it relates to, or one form of it, being sexual purity. And so, what does Paul have in mind here with this concept of sexual immorality? Well, Paul may very well be... um, He may very well have a a sort of a specific case in mind. He might be thinking specifically of adultery, maybe, that's in the back of his mind that's sort of prompting his writing. Might be thinking about temple prostitution that the Thessalonians would have formally been engaged in. That might have been in his mind that sort of prompted the writing. But I think that even so, he means this instruction here to have a much broader application, especially in light of the surrounding culture of the Thessalonians. And uh, so sexual immorality here, that's from the, the Greek word porneia. Maybe some of you have, uh, have heard of that. You can hear some English words in that, right? Uh, porn, pornography, porneia. Okay, that's the Greek word. And, and, and that basically refers to pretty much any form of sexual sin. Pretty much any form. 
That is, any form of sexual expression that is outside of how God designed it to be. Uh, So that can refer to prostitution, uh, or that can refer generally um, to uh, sex before marriage, or it could refer to adultery, um, or it could refer to homosexual practice, or I think pornography also would be included in this in principle, and a whole lot more. Essentially, what it comes down to is that sexual immorality here, it's basically, it refers to any sexual activity outside of God's designs for sexual activity. And so what God intends is that sexual activity is a gift to the exclusive marriage union of a man and a woman. It is a gift to that exclusive union. And so sexual immorality then is any sexual activity outside of that man-woman marriage union. And I think we can, we can really see the weight of this when we actually think a little bit more positively and think what are the good purposes of sex? What are the good purposes that God has in mind? And so if you just think about this for a minute, um, Ephesians five thirty one to 32. I think we have a slide for that. Ephesians 5, 32, or 31 to 32. This is Paul speaking. He's writing here to the Ephesians. Uh, and he says this, verse 31. He says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And that's Paul quoting there, actually from Genesis 2.24. He's quoting that, which is just a brief mention of marriage there in Genesis after God had just created the two sexes, male and female. And then Paul goes on in verse 32 there, and he says this mystery is profound, this mystery of this marriage union. And he says, I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So it refers to Christ and the church, Paul says. So at its most foundational level, this is what marriage refers to. And that is that it's meant to be a a, a picture of the union of Jesus with his people, the church. Um, Amazing. And so when, when when a man and a woman come together in the marriage union, um, especially actually in the specific act of sex itself, but really the overall marriage union, that is meant to be a sign. It's meant to be a pointer. It's meant to point beyond itself. It's meant to be a picture of this union with Jesus and his people, the church. So, so, so while people, we are in our natural state separated from God because of our sin, but then we're joined back to God through Jesus, okay, when we get... Uh, join back to Jesus through faith. We get restored back to God. We get united back to God. Two separate, different beings, right? God and humans join together mysteriously, just like male and female join together uh, mysteriously. Unity in diversity, diversity in unity, just like the triunity of of our God himself. And that is precisely what the, the, what sex in marriage, what the overall marriage union itself is intended to represent. That's what it means. That's what it points us to. And uh, so sex and marriage, these point us to the good news of Jesus, the good news about God being reunited with his people through Jesus, the union between Jesus and the church. Um, that's a healthy and a holy understanding of sex and, and sex in marriage. Um, sex and the marital union, these are meant to picture the kind of love and commitment and sacrifice and delight and satisfaction and closeness 
that we have actually as we're united to God through Jesus. And then that gives us the backdrop, that positive view of marriage and sex and God's designs in it. That's the backdrop for Paul now to focus on the more negative side, which of course is this porneia or sexual immorality in its various forms. And, uh, and he contrasts the right holy conduct of those who know God um, with those who, uh, in the surrounding culture, who do not know God. So in verse 5, he mentions the passion of lust, he says there. And that, that was the characteristic approach to sexual expression in the surrounding culture. The passion of lust. In other words, not self-control. Uh, Paul points to that in verse 4. Verse 4 again, Paul says there that each one should control his own body in holiness and honor. In other words, control your sexual urges rather than your sexual urges controlling you. Okay? Um, uh, it, um, the, the, the Christian ethic in, uh, when, when, it, when it comes to sexuality is that we control our sexual urges rather than our sexual urges controlling us. It's self-control versus passionate lust. That's the contrast between those who know God and those who don't know God. So in fact, Paul says essentially that to be holy, that's one expression of holiness being um, sexual purity. To be holy, another expression of that is to be, again, self-controlled with our sexual expression. And in fact, that's a telling mark of God's people. It's that we would be a sexually pure people. So that's part of what marks out God's people as those who, who in fact, do know him. So you can see that, uh, or, or at least that's implied in verse 5, where Paul says that the passion of lust is characteristic of those who do not know God. And so, in fact, how we express ourselves sexually is actually a core gospel-related issue, we could say. Because we only know God in and through Jesus. And Paul is enlightening us here that the fact that, 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 that sexual purity is actually a product of knowing God. And again, we only know God in and through Jesus. So in fact, sexual purity is a core gospel-related issue. It's not peripheral. Now don't get me wrong here, by the way. Um, I'm not suggesting that sexual purity is the gospel in and of itself. I'm not suggesting that it is Jesus himself, right? We don't get saved because we are maybe sexually pure people. But it is a fundamental implication of the gospel believed. If we believe the gospel, we will be sexually pure. We will express our holiness in at least that one specific way. It's evidence of our salvation. It's fruit of trusting uh, Jesus. It's fruit of our knowing God, in other words. And in general, the Thessalonians, man, they were showing this. And, and yet Paul is still compelled to press them on, to, to encourage them for holding fast in this way, but yet remind them that they are paddling upstream against the cultural current. So keep paddling. Do so more and more, he says. So in light of all of that, in light of what sort of Paul likely has in mind here regarding sexual immorality, why should we obey that command? Uh, why should we abstain from sexual immorality? So for like a child here, you, you know, our parents give us an instruction and we want to know why. Why, mom? Why, dad? 
Well, Paul's going to give us a few reasons here. I think, I think Paul points to a few reasons. First of all, um, sexual immorality always harms somebody. It always harms somebody. So this isn't just a, a, a private matter. It virtually always harms somebody. You notice verse 6 again. Paul mentions transgressing and wronging a brother there. And that could also be translated as violating the rights of somebody or defrauding somebody or cheating somebody. And I think that makes sense that that would be the language that's used there because, again, if sex is designed by God as a gift for an exclusive experience of man and woman in marriage, well, then if a person engages in sexual activity, whether that's before they're married or after they're married in adultery or in other ways that might block uh, uh, another out of, block a spouse out of that sexual experience, like maybe if you're alone with pornography, for example, well, then that experience is in some way stolen from somebody. Either it's stolen from a spouse, or it's stolen from a future spouse, or it's stolen away, it's, somebody has cheated out, uh, somebody who might be uh, somebody else, and their spouse or their future spouse. Uh, now, certainly it can be harmful in many other ways, of course, um, emotional brokenness, um, abuse, uh, diseases, all sorts of ways that sexual immorality is harmful. But I think a common denominator to all of those reasons and, and others is that somebody is always cheated out of the sexual experience that God intends. So he intends, again, namely, this, that sexual activity is a special experience and privilege of the exclusive man-woman marriage relationship. And so that's at least uh, one reason why we should abstain from sexual immorality, because somebody is always essentially transgressed or wronged. Uh, secondly, another reason why we should obey here, and that is because of how Jesus will respond to sexual immorality when he comes back. So um, Jesus is coming back, and uh, when he does, we see this in verse 6. If you look there again, Paul says that no one should transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because, he says, the Lord is an avenger in all of these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. And so why should we abstain from sexual immorality? Because, verse 6 says, because Jesus is an avenger in all of these things. Or as the NIV translation says, the Lord will punish all those who commit such sins. I know that sounds maybe a little bit shocking. We don't uh, typically like to think about uh, Jesus in that way. But that is Jesus when he comes back um, in the future. Right now... Right now, by God's grace, now is the time to confess. Right now is the time to forsake our sin. And Jesus will welcome us with open arms. Um, but then, in the future, when he comes back, then is the time that Jesus will punish all sin, not the least of which will be sexual immorality. And I know that that might feel a little shocking, um, but that's what Paul gives us here as a reason. And it can feel a little bit shocking thinking about Jesus as an avenger in this. Um, but that in mind, Paul does give us more. Paul says more here. And so you can look to verse 7. Verse 7 again says, For God has not called us for impurity, 
but in holiness. And verse 7 there, I think that is a third reason now why we should abstain from sexual immorality. Namely, it's because God called you. God called you. In other words, the idea here, this is related to um, uh, what we've covered in some of the past First Thessalonian sermons here. But it's that, it's that God sets his love on a certain people, and God chooses them, and he calls them in to be a part of his family through Jesus. And so if you're united to Jesus by faith, then God has called you into his family, which is a community, a family of holiness. And so God is saying here, abstain from sexual immorality. Why, we might ask? Because you're part of my family. This is who you are. And, and holiness is the way we do things in my family. You could hear God saying that. In fact, holiness in uh, sexual expression, this is a special mark of being a part of God's people who are set apart from those who are not God's people. Uh, so remember the pagans here that Paul has in mind with the surrounding culture. Paul says that they act out in passionate lust because they don't know God. Okay, but if we've been called by God and brought into his family through Jesus, then we do know God. We absolutely know God. And so James Grant says this. James Grant says, If we know God, we will live differently because we will understand why God created the world the way he did, why he created male and female, and why he created sexual activity. We demonstrate the knowledge of God in our behavior regarding sexual activity. We demonstrate the knowledge of God. We demonstrate that we know God with our behavior in, uh, regarding sexual activity. And so why should we obey a third reason then simply said? It's because we are God's people. And sexual purity is a mark of that. So it would be like telling a, a wide receiver, if you know football, to, to catch a football. Why? Because you're a wide receiver, and that's what wide receivers do. They catch footballs. Your identity as a wide receiver is, is or your function as a wide receiver is uh, uh, dictated by your identity as a wide receiver. Your function to catch footballs is what I meant to say. To catch footballs is dictated by your identity as a wide receiver. That's what wide receivers do. So catch the football. Um, a bit like that, not a perfect analogy, but sexual purity is a function of, it's a mark of truly knowing and being united to God through Jesus. So be who you are is the call here. Be who you are. Remember, th this idea of sanctification, th it's that we are growing and we're becoming more and more in practice what we already are in position and an identity before God. Uh, now, if that's the case... If you are trusting Jesus and we are already God, part of God's people, then what should we make of the warning there uh, that Jesus is an avenger um, in, in verse 6? Well, basically, that is a warning for us. Um, there, there, are, there are other warnings like this in the New Testament. And warning passages like this, I think they do a couple things. Number one, if we truly are trusting in Jesus, if we really are a part of God's people then warnings like this, man, they wake us up. They sort of snap us out of, uh, of spiritual apathy and spiritual uh, laziness. They remind us of, of the seriousness of our sin. They remind us of the dire consequences uh, that we would face if, in fact, we're not under God's grace in Jesus. 
And then number two, warnings like this, they help actually to expose the true people of God. They, 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 they help us to, to, uh, to, to show who are the people truly following Jesus or who are Jesus' true followers versus those who are just paying lip service to Jesus. Um, so uh, you could think of it, God's people, they're holy, uh, they're set apart. In fact, that's part of what holiness means. Part of what it means to be holy is to be set apart. So uh, God's people are distinguished and they're set apart um, uh, uh, as people who know God, as people united to Jesus, as that's demonstrated in their uh, sexual purity. And so how are we going to respond to that warning that Jesus avenges these things? Um, that helps to show our true colors. So will that warning here sort of draw us toward Jesus? Or maybe will that actually repulse us and sort of push us away from Jesus? Um, and if, if you're a parent, I think you can get this, especially if you have young children. You know, we might discipline our kids. And how do they respond? Well, ideally, now they might cry, they might be sad, but ideally they, they, they turn and they come right back into our arms for comfort and for a sense of security, a sense of help. And uh, so the very hands that disciplined, that disciplined them are the very same hands that they turn to for comfort and for help and for security. And I think that's a picture here that we get from warning passages like this. If we are truly God's people and we are secure in his family, uh, then even through uh, discipline or uh, the discipline even of sort of a stern warning here, um, even through that, we don't run away from Jesus, but actually what we, our impulse is to turn towards Jesus for comfort and for help to, uh, to obey and for forgiveness. Um, others, on the other hand, uh, those who are not truly part of God's people, the tendency, I think, is to hear warnings like this and, and sort of move away from God. And the sentiment is like, uh, you know, man, if that's what God is like, I want nothing to do with him. That's crazy. That's unreasonable. I want nothing to do with him. And so this actually becomes, these, these warning passages like this sort of become um, sort of tests of our spiritual vitality. How, how do you respond to a, a warning like this that Jesus will punish sexual immorality? How, how, how do you respond to that? Do you feel a sense of wanting to run and hide from Jesus? Or do you feel a sense um, that you kind of want to brush him off? You think he's crazy. You think that's unreasonable. Um, or do you feel sort of a healthy conviction of sin? And, and your impulse is wanting to change. And, and wanting to lean into God for comfort and for um, help to obey. How do we respond? Well, speaking of that comfort, that help uh, to obey, I think we see that in verse 8. Verse 8 again. Uh, there it says, whoever disregards this, dis, uh, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. God gives us his Holy Spirit. And that then would be the, the uh, answer to the how question. Okay, how can we obey this command? Now, in other words, not how do we obey this command. I'm not getting at how we, uh, like, what are the logistical details? What are the steps that we take to obey? I'm asking how are we, uh, how can we obey this command? In other words, how are we able to obey this command? How is it even possible for us? And the answer to that is that if we're a part of God's people, then right now, 
God gives us his own presence and power in the person of the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit. That's how we are able. This is one of the greatest hopes of, uh, uh, that we have as Christians. It's, it's that the Holy Spirit is with us right now and each moment to empower us to live a holy life. And specifically so in this area of uh, sexual conduct. Now that doesn't mean that we're going to necessarily be perfect in this. Um, I am not perfect in this, most certainly. However, it does mean that we are not helpless. We are not helpless uh, with regard to or in this area of sexual purity. We can resist impure desires. Through the Holy Spirit, we do actually have the power to say no to sexual immorality and to say yes to a life of holiness. Gordon Fee says this, Gordon Fee says that for Paul, the Spirit is not only the key to becoming believers, which he is, but the Holy Spirit is the power for truly Christian behavior. He is the power for truly Christian behavior and therefore makes disobedience on one's part a difficult thing to argue for. In other words, we can't really argue and say, well, I just can't resist these impure desires. This is the way I'm wired. I have these desires and I need to act on them. No. We have the Holy Spirit. We have God himself living inside of us. If we are truly Christian, then by definition as Christians, we have the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so we do have God's real-time presence and power at hand to, in fact, help us to say no to ungodly desires and say yes to godly, holy, sexually pure desires. That's good news. And so in these verses today... Coming to an end here, Paul is encouraging, he's spurring on the Thessalonians in what he's been concerned about all along. It's this deepest concern of his, it's that they would be holy and that they would be sanctified. That is, they would have an ongoing growth in that holiness over time, especially in the area of sexual expression, sexual purity. And that especially against this, this culture that would be surrounding them that would be constantly pulling them in the other direction. And so Paul wants them to keep paddling upstream, so to speak. Do so more and more, he says. And uh, man, that word to them, it applies just as much to you and me today. Um, if we are in Christ, this is a word for us. This is a command for us. If we're part of God's family through Jesus, then we are commanded here abstain from sexual immorality in all of its forms. Abstain from sexual immorality in all of its forms. Uh, and we should do that because sexual immorality, for one, it harms people. It harms people. And also, secondly, Jesus will punish it. But especially, third, why should we obey this? It's because we are part of God's family. And our sexual purity reflects that union that we have with him through Jesus. It's a special way to reflect um, uh, the union we have with Jesus. And, and with that command there, we also have the power to actually obey this right here, moment by moment, because we have the very presence and power of God in the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the chance to be in uh, this part of your word now. And... Um, uh, as I prayed to begin, I just pray again that you would help us to believe what is true about these things and that you would give us then the power to act accordingly 
um, so that we would honor you with our conduct. In Jesus' name, amen.